Well, good morning. Well, we're continuing our series on the book of Matthew. And this morning, you may have heard of the story of the Mount of Transfiguration. The, uh, the Mount of Transfiguration, the big word, transfiguration. Basically, it's the Greek word that uh, we get the word metamorphosis from. And um, yeah, it's like a Jesus was transfigured. It means he was changed in form or nature. It was an incredible thing. Now, I climbed a mountain once. Uh, it was, uh, the mountain was called Lady Peak. And uh, there it is on the screen behind me. Uh, it's not, it wasn't a huge mountain, 7,146 feet. But it was one that my dad hadn't climbed before. My dad lives in that area. That's in the Fraser Valley. He's climbed a number of the mountains in the area. And he hadn't climbed that one yet. But for it to be worth spending a whole day climbing that mountain, you wanted to start on a relatively clear day. My dad was nearly 70 years old. He was just a couple months short of 70 years old when he climbed this mountain. We didn't want to risk climbing on a day where there wouldn't be a good view for a 70-year-old man. You know, it seems a lot of work for no view. Uh, So we waited for the right day, and the day we chose was partly cloudy. You know, partly cloudy, and it's still it seemed like there would be a good enough view with the clouds we saw in the sky. And so we started climbing. Up we went. And every so often pausing to admire God's creation. That's my dad in the, the bottom right corner there, just staring off and at the view. And uh, as we got higher, the clouds began increasing. Now, this is a pretty steep mountain. There were places where it was so steep you could just reach out and touch the mountain without even having to lean, bend at the waist. And so it involved some scrambling. There was a fair bit of work involved. And I was concerned about my dad, about the exertion this was taking. Climbing a mountain he'd never climbed, almost 70 years old, and uh, the clouds were increasing, diminishing the view. And it seemed like this might not even be worth the effort. But... By the time we got to the top, this was the view that we had. It was socked in. Now, there were times where the clouds moved around and we got a bit of a view, but that was, that was for part of the time, that was our view. And uh, so, but what, what made matters worse for me was that the whole way up and the whole way down, it was me who was trying to keep up with my amazing, nearly 70-year-old dad. He was, he was motoring. In fact, I hurt my knee on that trip, and he didn't hurt anything. So what's up with that? He's a very fit man, an amazing man. And uh, we're going to be talking about a mountain this morning, the Mount of Transfiguration. But there's no mention of the view. They didn't necessarily wait for just the right day. They went on the day the Father told Jesus to go up that mountain. And We know, those of us who are familiar with the story, that they didn't need a view. Jesus was the view that day. Amen? Let's turn to Matthew chapter 17, and I'm going to just read the first nine verses. It'll appear behind me in the English Standard Version. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transformed before them, and his face shone like the sun, 
And his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Let's pray. Father, this is an amazing story. It's amazing to think of what those disciples witnessed. And yet, Lord, by the telling of the story, by the recording of this story, you invite us up that mountain with them to see what they saw, to imagine what they saw, and to learn what they learned from it all. And I pray, Lord, we would learn this morning what you would have us learn from this story of Jesus' transfiguration. In Jesus' name, amen. So why did Jesus climb this mountain? He could have made himself the view anywhere. He could have made himself the view inside a house. He could have made himself the view by the Sea of Galilee, anywhere. He could have, why did they have to climb a mountain? Well, they did climb a mountain. And we have to remember everything Jesus did and everywhere he went, he always had a reason for it. It's, he didn't do random things. When he went somewhere, it's because he felt his heavenly father telling him to go there. He insisted on only doing what his heavenly father told him to do. So as the disciples were hiking up this mountain with someone whom Peter had just recognized as the son of the living God, what were Peter and James and John thinking? Why is Jesus taking us up this mountain? Perhaps they were thinking of other mountains, like the mountain Abraham climbed with his son Isaac in obedience to God. Perhaps they were thinking about the mountain Moses climbed to meet with God, Mount Sinai. Or maybe they were thinking about the mountain that Elijah went to and called upon God to defeat the prophets of Baal. Dave Perry points out in his book, Why Jesus is Good News, that whenever God went to a mountain, God seemed to reveal himself in a special way. I believe Matthew intended his Jewish readers, he wrote the book of Matthew to Jewish readers, to to recall some of those mountains from Jewish history. and, And to wonder, how would God reveal himself on this mountain, this time? What is God, the Son of God, doing on this mountain? Well, Jesus went up the mountain Because I believe he wanted to show his disciples a glimpse of heaven's glory. If this long climb had just been for Jesus' sake and wasn't for his disciples at all, then why would he have even taken any disciples? It wasn't unheard of for Jesus to go off and pray without his disciples. It wasn't, there was one point where he sent them off on a boat across the lake while he went up the mountain and prayed. That wasn't unheard of. Why did he take disciples? It's because 
climbing this mountain wasn't just for his sake, to meet with Moses and Elijah and perhaps be encouraged by them. It was for his disciples' sake. So to find a fuller answer of why he took his disciples, we need to check the context. In fact, we need to look back into chapter 16. In chapter 16, uh, in uh, verse 21, Jesus told his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Peter had objected to this. As you recall, we spoke about this last week. Peter had objected, and then Jesus had rebuked Peter for his objection. And then Jesus explained something very important to his disciples about the kingdom of God. Let's look at what he said. He's just finished rebuking Peter for Peter's objection. And then he says, Then Jesus told his disciples, verse 24 of chapter 16, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there is some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So in response to Peter's objection to Jesus being killed in Jerusalem, Jesus explained that if you really want to be his disciple, in other words, a follower of Jesus, that's what a disciple is, you need to deny self. Now I think most of us in this room know who self is. Self is that unruly person who reacts to others, who lashes out, who pushes forward, who promotes preferences, who sulks or simmers when overlooked and wants to be noticed or acknowledged or even just left alone. That's self. Peter's preference at that time was for the Messiah to conquer those nasty Roman oppressors and set up a mighty kingdom right here and now in place of those Romans. Does that sound familiar to anyone here? I know sometimes I've said, come on, Jesus, why can't you do something about this suffering right now? Come on, right now. Why don't you show your power right now? Why not? You can do it. What's the problem here? And then we end up having to wait. We end up having to wait and suffer as we wait. And we don't like suffering and we don't like waiting. But sometimes that's where God leaves us. Jesus had no intention of pushing him forward in some aggressive way, bulldozing the opposition or conquering by some show of great power as if to show that true life can only be found if your circumstances are improved somehow. No, Jesus' way of gaining the world and life in this world was by dying. And if we want to come after Jesus, the way he says in this passage, those, would those who, if anyone would come after me, if we want to come after Jesus, if we want to follow in his ways, he says to die. 
deny ourselves. Jesus said, if you truly want to find the life God has for you, you need to lay down your self-centered approach to life, die to your own preferences, and only then will God fill you with his life. And I'm going, Jesus would say, I'm going to go ahead of you by dying on behalf of all of you to pay the death penalty for your rebellion against God. And then the Father is going to raise me from the dead so that I can share that resurrection life with all those who follow me. And following Jesus means dying. So then we see that the abundant and eternal life Jesus offers that abundant life, which sounds so nice, comes through dying, which doesn't sound nice. It's in dying to self that we submit to Jesus' lordship. As we follow Jesus in this way, he conquers the world, one soul at a time. So, if we're not fond of following Jesus in this example he sets, and dying to our own preferences, and finding new life in Jesus that way. How do we do it? Jesus says there's people who try to gain the whole world, but lose their life. They forfeit their life. How do we try to gain the whole world? How do we try to gain meaning in this world, meaning in life, rather than through Jesus? Well, I don't know about you, but when, when you're feeling kind of glum, but some people do various things, different people do different things when they're looking for that little pick-me-up in life, that sense of meaning in life, that sense of life is good. You know, some people will choose sports activities. Others will choose food. Others, entertainment. Me, I used to choose small online purchases from a place that puts a smile on their packages. (laughs) Just a book or a CD was all I needed to make me happy. Just something that I could look forward to receiving in the mail With a smile. But I've gotten better. I don't do that as much as I used to. I used to, a couple years ago, I used to to just, if I was discouraged, it wouldn't be surprising to find me on Amazon looking for another book to buy. And I'd, I'd usually read those books. But that used to be my equivalent of trying to gain the whole world. Or more accurately, a better life in this world. One parcel at a time, which takes a while, by the way. There are people out there who buy boats and snowmobiles and fast cars. There's nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves, but too often some people use those as a way of trying to find life in this world rather than in finding and following Jesus. Perhaps the reason they look to those things is because following Jesus involves dying. Fast cars seem more fun. Jesus says, stop trying to find life according to your ways, which is actually the world's ways, and choose the way that will amaze the world. Death to your own preferences. Denial of self and a willingness to suffer in this world so that people around us will wonder, how can you have that joy when you don't have all the the good things in life that I have. How can you have that joy when you're going through that hard time or things aren't going the way you hoped they would? That amazes the world. Jesus taking up his cross was essentially what Peter objected to. And now Jesus was saying to Peter and the others and to us 
that they they needed to take up their crosses as well and to die to self so that they could truly live. Peter objects to Jesus doing it, and Jesus says, no, not just me only, you too. Ian Duguid has a wonderful way of expressing God's heart in this. He says, when we explore what God is up to in our lives, we discover that his good plan is not a plan for our ease and comfort, but rather a plan for our death and resurrection, dying to sin and to our old self, and rising to a whole new life in him. He loves you and me too much to leave us unchanged. But then it's as though because this was such a hard word, this really is a hard word, all this talk of dying, taking up your cross was like the equivalent of saying, get into that electric chair. Because of this hard word, the father mercifully decided that Jesus needed to show his disciples a preview of the glory those choices lead to. You see, there's a connection between these two stories. It's very rare in the Gospels to find a reference to the number of days, the exact amount of time between two stories. We see in 17 verse 1, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. That's very intentional, Matthew, to refer to that exact time period. And it's his way of connecting the two stories with that short passage of time. Jesus saw a connection between the story of dying to self and this experience of the transformation or the transfiguration of Jesus the father wanted to show the disciples the glory that comes through choosing that life of self-denial most commentators agree that Jesus's transfiguration was not his divinity on display but the glorification of his earthly body much like will one day experience don't forget that in Matthew chapter 13 listen to this It's easy to miss. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 43, Jesus said, The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Doesn't that sound familiar? That sounds sounds like the same description of Jesus during the transfiguration, that he shone like the sun. Matthew says, or Jesus says in Matthew 13, we're going to shine like the sun. So once again, why did Jesus take the disciples? The, The transfiguration in front of those three disciples was the Father's way of confirming the authority of the one who asked such hard things and of giving those disciples a graphic reason, a graphic reason for being confident in the one who spoke those hard words and to help us when the going gets tough. So by the transfiguration, by by letting those disciples witness that, their conviction about the authority of the one calling them to something so difficult increased, and their confidence in him increased. Their sense of his authority and their confidence in him for when the going got tough. This is why we all need to ask God every day just to check ourselves. Father, You spoke this word about dying to self. You spoke this word about self-denial. How am I preserving my life today? What personal preferences are you challenging that I've been clinging to? What are you asking me to die to today so that I can find life in you instead of in these counterfeits? In a crowd this size, it's inevitable that there's some people who will find 
one or more of those questions relevant to what God is speaking to you in your life. And I encourage you to ask God him yourself personally those questions daily because that's what God calls us to. Is God asking something of you that feels too costly? Well, trust him. Trust Jesus. For only as we die and obey to these, these things he calls us to will we discover the abundant life that is found in living for the living God. Now, what was it that the Father showed those three disciples? What was it that they saw that confirmed their sense of Jesus' authority and increased their confidence in him and reinforced how crucial obedience was to this hard word? What was it they saw that accomplished that, gave them that sense of his authority, gave them that confidence in him? The first thing Matthew tells us is they saw Jesus transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Okay? Wow! Right? Like, this has never happened before. Jesus' face is shining like the sun. That's that's a big deal. Like the sun is bright. And he was only 10 or 20 feet in front of them. Like it would be like, wow, I can't look at the sun. And it's how many miles away? I don't know. There's Jesus right in front of them shining like the sun. And then there's Moses and Elijah from all those ages ago talking with him like, wow. <laughs> how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? Well, it says they were talking together. I expect Jesus said their names. And he could have said something like, Hey, Moses, it's great to see you. And Elijah, this is so encouraging. Right? I mean, Jesus wasn't, Jesus was man as well as God. As man, he was vulnerable to temptation. He was vulnerable to the temptation of fear. And I believe Moses and Elijah came to minister to Jesus, to, to strengthen his resolve, to, to strengthen his sense of hope and expectation and, and his, to just cheer him up. Not that Jesus would have been depressed or anything. Jesus didn't get repressed, but he would have experienced temptation. He says, it says he was tempted in all things. And so God had the mercy of sending Moses and Elijah to encourage him. Wow. But God the Father didn't just send Moses and Elijah for Jesus' sake. I, I believe he sent him for the, them for the disciples' sake as well. Many see Moses and Elijah as, as the representatives of the law and the prophets. In the, in the Hebrew scriptures, the law and the prophets was a sort of a term they used to refer to the inspired written word of God. They would, when referring to the word of God, they would say, in the law and the prophets. And so, you know, Moses, he received the law on Mount Sinai. Elijah was one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. And now they were standing there, the law and the prophets, ministering to the living word, Jesus. It's a powerful scene at which only Peter could manage to blurt out something inappropriate. 
Peter suggests, hey, why don't we set up three tents? One for you, Jesus. One for Moses. One for Elijah. We can all hang out here a while. This is incredible. I don't want you guys to leave. And so this is what he suggested. It's a strange thing to offer in such an awe-inspiring scene, but I chalk it up to Peter just getting overexcited and uh, getting carried away. Have you ever been around somebody you highly regard and you say something trying to sound suitably respectable just to give a good impression and you get this kind but blank look in response. Uh, long after I graduated from college, I, I, one day I bumped into one of my old professors, but he was my favorite professor. He was a professor that I loved. We'd been friends when I had been at college, as much as a student can be a friend with a professor. And he, we, we bumped into each other there one day, and, and we started talking. I can't even remember what we started talking about, but I remember I was trying to sound clever. I was trying to sound, you know, kind of smart. I think I'm a graduate, right? And uh, I even tried to be funny, you know, crack a joke or two. And, and then I remember, I, 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 this was years ago, and I still remember even the tone of voice, the emphasis on certain words. He said, well, I think we've talked long enough about that. <laughs> and then he walked away. That was it. That was the end of the conversation. It was like, uh, oh, yeah, right, yeah, of course. <laughs> enough of that. <laughs> Yeah, well, I wonder what the Father was thinking. The God, the Father, as that bright cloud descended and a voice from the cloud said, enough about that. Enough about tents and and things. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Peter was talking excitedly, no doubt, about these booths. And yet as the law and the prophets stood before the Son of God, God the Father focused only on his Son as he affirmed him and commanded the disciples to listen to him. This highlighted that God the Father knew all about Peter's objection to Jesus dying in Jerusalem. The Father would have been listening to that conversation. He knew about Peter's objections. And he also knew about the hard words Jesus had spoken to his disciples in response to Peter's objections. And the Father then endorsed Jesus' words and made it clear he wanted his disciples to listen to Jesus carefully. When the Father said You know, if he had said enough about that, it may not have just been in regards to tents. It may have been in regards to Peter's objections. Enough of that. Listen to my son. Well, hearing the father's voice in that bright cloud that had descended upon the mountain must have terrified. Well, it says it terrified the disciples. God's glory was in that cloud and no doubt God's glory was in that voice. In Exodus 24, 15, it says, When Moses went up the mountain and the clouds covered the mountain, it says the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, meaning smoke from a fire. Dark smoke with ash in it. It would have been all over that mountain. It would have seemed like the mountain was on fire. That would have been fearful. But this mountain, 
It was covered with a bright cloud. This wasn't a smoke from a kiln. This was a bright cloud, which was consistent with the radiance that the disciples saw in Jesus on that mountain. It was a glory cloud, a cloud of God's glory. And then with their faces to the ground, terrified, Jesus suddenly touches them and says, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Jesus was the view. Oh, the peace of that phrase. I need to, isn't it wonderful to be able to recall Scripture to mind? There's times where we need to replay that phrase in our mind. They saw no one but Jesus only. As the words, have no fear, sink into our soul. Who in this place needs to hear that today? Despite your blunders, just like despite Peter's blunders, Jesus invites you to rise and have no fear as you focus on no one but Jesus only. That means not focusing on yourself and your blunders. Focus on Jesus the one who died, so we could be forgiven for all our blunders. We focus on so many things, and most notably, perhaps more than anything else, we focus on our faults. Consider yourself having been on that mountain with Jesus today. The disciples were told to tell no one that story until Jesus had risen from the dead, which they didn't even know what that meant at the time. But once he did rise from the dead... They began telling everybody. There's a whole world of people who know this story now. And the reason we're meant to know this story is so that we can consider ourselves on that mountain, along with Jesus' followers that he invited with him that day, and to hear the words, rise up and have no fear. And when you lift up your eyes, look at Jesus and Jesus only. This lesson of keeping our eyes on Jesus and listening to his words is critical. This lesson of not fearing the hard words that Jesus speaks to us is also critical. Because at both ends of this story, both before and after, Jesus speaks to his disciples. This is a quote from verse 23 and 22-23 after this story of the transfiguration. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And he will be raised on the third day. Jesus had just said that. And now he's saying it again after the story. This puts the story in very intentionally between two bookends. Uh, We're speaking of Jesus' death. Declaring, basically illustrating, that the way to glory is always first through dying. They had witnessed his glory. They were encouraged by his glory. But now they were told the only way there is through dying. Dying to this world so that we can show the world there's something or actually someone far greater worth living for. The transfiguration was God the Father's way of emphasizing that the only way to enter into glory with Jesus is through obedience of taking up your cross and following Jesus. In other words, losing your life. God wants them to learn the importance of listening to God no matter what he says. What is your response when God asks you to die to something specific? 
Is it to object and say, far be it from you, Lord, to ask that, which was similar to Peter's response? Or is it to listen to God's Son as we're commanded to and to obey him? Knowing that the only way to follow Jesus is to deny ourselves. Knowing that in order to save our lives, we must lose our lives. I want to close by looking at the next thing that Matthew tells us about in this passage. It's a contrast. He creates a contrast that reveals our need to learn what the disciples learned on that mountain. Matthew 17 verse 14 says, When they came down, They came down to a crowd in which a distressed father had been asking the nine other disciples to heal his demonized son, and they couldn't heal the boy. Now, this is, this is unexpected, because in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus had given them the authority to heal the sick, to, to cleanse lepers, to, to set people free from demons, and even to raise the dead. All those things Jesus gave them authority to do in Matthew 10. And now, nine disciples can't heal one boy. What's up with that? That's a very unique story. This contrast between the glory of the transfiguration and the disciples' unbelief has to be intentional here. It's a contrast we're meant to notice. Two very unique stories. There's nothing like them elsewhere in the Gospels, but they're all side by side in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This transfiguration is a story that's meant to inspire confidence in Jesus so that we would walk in him and all he asks of us. But but right here, the disciples can't do what they've been given authority to do. So they can't obey Jesus when he commands them to heal the sick. Jesus' response is painful disappointment. An expression of painful disappointment in the unbelief he continues to find among this generation he's ministering among. He says, oh faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? As we consider how strong Jesus' reaction is, we have to remember Hebrews 11.6 that says, without faith it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and is a rewarder of those who seek him. These disciples weren't operating in faith. That wasn't pleasing to the Lord. That's why he could feel that painful disappointment. So Jesus healed the boy instantly. After which, the disciples asked him privately why they couldn't do it. Jesus immediately focused on their faith and he said, because of the littleness of your faith. Now, the Greek here is more accurately translated, your little faith. Because of your little faith, you could not heal him. That's not a reference to the quantity. That's a reference to the quality of their faith. Because right here in the same passage, Jesus says, even if you, if you have faith like a tiny grain of mustard seed, you'll be able to move mountains. So quantity is not the issue. If you're here with a small amount of faith, God can work with that. But it's the quality of faith that's the issue. And so Jesus gives us the key to how to grow into a greater quality of faith. He says, this kind never comes out except by prayer and fasting. Now that's interesting. Because when Jesus heals this boy, he does neither of those things. He doesn't pray or fast. 
And yet he just told them, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. It says, verse 18 says, Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. What's up with that? Why does he say it requires this, but he doesn't do what it requires and it, it's done? The reason for this is that Jesus is not talking about a special prayer to be prayed in case of emergencies, but, but a, a life filled with prayer and fasting and with the faith that grows from your time spent with God. That's how your quality of faith will grow from that lifestyle of prayer, not just praying in emergencies. So that leads me back, all the way back to the Father's instruction at the Transfiguration when he said, listen to my son. Matthew wants to wants us to see this story at the bottom of the mountain in the shadow of the glory that was at the top of the mountain. He wants us to learn a lifestyle of prayer, a life spent in prayer, seeking him, hearing his voice, like the Father commanded them to listen to my son. That's why I believe God's, or Gateway's Hearing God course I call it God's Hearing God Course. It really could be called that. It's, it's a wonderful course in which God wants to teach us how to hear his voice better. And if you haven't taken it yet, I warmly encourage you to take that course. You'll grow in your prayer life because a prayer life is never meant to be just one-way communication. It's meant to be back and forth in which we hear the Lord and we obey him. And so take the Hearing God Course. But then before Jesus' second declaration that we read in verses 22, 23, that said he'd be killed and raised up from the dead, Jesus finished the story of the boy at the foot of the mountain by urging his disciples to practice a lifestyle of prayer. And then he followed that with a promise. Nothing will be impossible for you. If you discover this lifestyle of listening to my son a lifestyle of prayer and fasting as we listen to God and we commune with God nothing will be impossible for you that is an incredible claim and yet it's so important to remember that Jesus made that claim after God the Father commanded us to listen to Jesus and just after God the Son called us to a lifestyle of prayer which I believe would be listening prayer Both the Father and the Son were calling us to the same thing. If you're going to obey Jesus in this, do so in a lifestyle of listening prayer in which you can commune with Jesus and He with you. Otherwise, all this talk of self-denial will just become a huge burden to you. But it's not a burden when we have that life with God. This also reinforces that the life we gain from self-denial does not come simply because we deny ourselves, but because all the things we give up are exchanged for a life with Jesus in which we hear him and obey him in a way that makes nothing that Jesus calls us to do impossible as we take up our cross and follow him. That's how that claim, that incredible claim, nothing will be impossible for you, can be true. Because if we're listening to God and we're only doing what we hear him ask us to do, nothing he calls us to do will be impossible. 
as we take up our crosses and follow him in a lifestyle of listening prayer, communing with God, hearing his voice, and obeying what we hear.